Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Bad Case, a podcast about evil and complicated queers in history. My name is Ben Miller. I'm a writer and researcher living in Berlin and a member of the board of the Schwules Museum there. And this week, we are sadly hueless. Um, and I am very excited, though, um, to welcome as a special guest someone who, if you've ever heard the show, if you've ever heard anything that we've said about the queer history of interwar Berlin, You've almost certainly heard us say this person's name if you've read our book. You've seen our many footnotes to this person's uh, wonderful writing about that time. And that is, of course, Laurie Marhofer, who is Associate Professor of History at the University of Washington. Uh, their first book, which we've spoken a lot about on the show and which we talked a lot about in our chapter in the book about um, the bad gaze of Weimar Berlin, um, was about... Um, what they referred to as the Weimar consensus on sexual lives and sexual politics and the politics of sexual liberation in the Weimar Republic, which is a real change from a kind of common way of thinking about that time that's very based on, you know, Liza Minnelli and sequins and, and dirty underpants, um, and that instead thinks about the ways in which sexual liberation movements were part of this broader society and collaborated with power uh, often in really um, interesting analytically ways to think about and often in really troubling ways in ways that makes a, make us need to push back against some of those sort of romantic, maybe overly romantic ideas that we have about that time. Their new book, um, which came out too late for us to include in that chapter, but which as soon as I read, uh, it's wonderful, I knew we had to uh, get them on the show to talk about it, is called Racism and the Making of Gay Rights, A Sexologist, His Student, and the Empire of Queer Love. Uh, and that book extends uh, Marhofer's intellectual project, I think, in really important ways by looking at the ways in which Magnus Hirschfeld, this kind of great symbolic hero of that Weimar sexual liberation movement that we were talking about earlier, was in many ways, and especially in the book, uh, as the title will tell you, in, in ways related to race and racism, far more complicated of a figure than a lot of kind of overly hagiographic, overly saintly histories like to admit. And so that kind of storytelling, um, that kind of narrative, that kind of historical interventions obviously right up our alley. And so I want to start by welcoming Laurie to the show. Hi, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. I'm a big fan. There's a link to Laurie's book uh, in the show notes, and it's a book that really destroys the idea that academic histories, especially if they're uh, critical, have to be... Um, bone dry or require an enormous amount of theoretical grounding to get yourself through. So I really do recommend that people go and find the books. It really does seem to me like a book that was read for people to read, um, lots of people. And I think that's something that's really, uh, that's really wonderful and exciting about it. So Laurie, do you want to start? Um, and I think we're going to cover some territory that was in the first book here as well. But do you want to start by introducing Magnus Hirschfeld to our audience? Maybe Tell them who this person is, as if they've never heard of him before, because maybe some people listening haven't. And talk to us a little bit about why he's so important when we talk about this moment. Yeah, sure, Ben. So I probably a lot of listeners know of him already, but um, he was a German sexologist. He was born in 1868. He had a medical degree. And by the time he was in the middle of his life, he was an international expert in human sexuality. And he's important in gay history because he's, 
I, you know, I think, um, I argue, he's the person who did the most to bring us an idea that we really take for granted now, or a lot of people do, which is that if you're gay, you were born gay, there's some innate part of you that was present at birth, it's unique, it's unusual, so gay people are a minority, but it's not a pathology, it's not an illness, it's a natural variation. Um, that's an idea that Hirschfeld um, and Havelock Ellis published at the same time w- without speaking, you know, they weren't in contact at that point, but, um, and then really like Hirschfeld went on to spend the rest of his life spreading that idea all around the world. And even after he passed in the fifties and the sixties, if you look at the literature, he's very closely associated with that particular idea. I mean, af- after he died, there's this turn to Freudianism and people are pretty conservative, but there are lots of references to Hirschfeld as this, wacky sexologist who had this crazy idea, right? And then gradually that idea gained widespread acceptance to the point where it's, it's, uh, I think it, it's foundational to the way a lot of people think about homosexuality. So that's um, why he's so important. He was uh, driven out of Germany by the Nazis. He died in exile. He was Jewish. Um, and he's really become a hero in Germany in the last, like, I don't know, tell me what you think, but I think like over the last 20 years, he's taken on really like national significance for Germans and he's more and more known outside of Germany. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's probably in the last 20 years that it's gotten, um, and maybe even more so in the last 10, that it's gotten to be such a national project. Um, I, I've always tied that hero moment to imagining Hirschfeld being rediscovered by this kind of post-68 generation of German activists and academics in the 80s, including some people, and we'll, we'll talk about the story of this kind of amazing story of some of the archival material that you work with in the book, and we'll talk about that later, uh, but some sort of recovered archival material from Hirschfeld's life, and that was rediscovered by many of these people, and, and you and I both know these people. Um, I've always speculated, perhaps this is impolite speculation. Um, But I don't think I'm saying anything bad about them. Um, That when this generation of people who are also this post-68 generation of people who are kind of, they're coming to terms, this is the the post-68 moment when when West Germany is is finally coming to terms with the crimes of the Holocaust. And then you have this gay activist and academic movement that is asserting a gay male presence in and among that and asserting a gay male presence in that remembrance culture and rediscovering this kind of vast array of liberation movements that had been at least in the, in terms of kind of um, in kind of known uh, felt explained daily life history, really forgotten at that point. And I just imagine how fucking excited they were when they found out that like the biggest guy in that was Jewish, because it's like, so, so wait, so not only he's one of ours, but he's also Jewish. And it's just this, it's this for that generation that was really trying to, that was really trying to come to terms with all of this, that would have been so breathtaking, I think. Um, And, and I really think that's a big part of how he became, because even at that time, as you write in the book, he was not, the undisputed leader of this movement. He was not someone that everyone agreed with. He was someone that everyone had to deal with at some point, 
But as you talk about in your first book, and as other people talk about, Robert Beachy talks about this a lot in, in his book, um, there are these really different, and this is something we've talked about a lot on the show, so we don't need to go too far into it, but there are these really different, strikingly ideologically different currents just of gay male liberation in the Weimar era, never mind anybody else. Yeah, that's really true. I mean, there are some non-Jewish anti-Semitic people in the movement too. But yeah, I think that's a really good point. He Right, like that generation was not suggesting that we create the, you know, uh, Hans Bluer Institute for, (laughs) you know, the... Or the Hans Bluer, if people who don't know, was a was a raging anti-Semite um, and also part of a of a, a sort of youth group ideology called the Fandafogel um, that has some uncomfortable, uh, no more than just uncomfortable, very bad pederastic qualities to it. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um... I mean, at the same time, I would, I completely agree with you. He's the only person who was an international celebrity. So he's the only gay male public, he wasn't out, he was not out, but he's the only pro-homosexual emancipation leader who has an international reputation. I mean, I think Radzuvites is a, is a good candidate for, runner-up and in many ways he his story which you did you did an episode on him which i think is so cool um represents this moment just as well but he he wasn't known outside of germany and he's not that well known in germany hirschfeld's really famous yeah hirschfeld is the name now here that people have heard of and i think other places in the world yeah i mean at that time um radzivite has more followers right radzivite has the mass movement organization um the the uh, Human Rights League, but Hirschfeld is the kind of respected expert. Hirschfeld's the person who's called upon to testify at trials. Hirschfeld's also somebody who's very media savvy, and Hirschfeld's somebody who I think for that and other reasons is, Hirschfeld's translated. Um, and so I think for that reason, Hirschfeld is much more influential both in his time and, and certainly much better remembered now. Um, so you said that Hirschfeld was born in 1868. So when does he start to begin to kind of write publicly or become a public presence um, on this, it feels strange to call it this question, but maybe on this topic. So he went to medical school. He was a younger child of a large Jewish family. His father was a doctor and he got his degree. He set up a practice. He was into like kind of alternative medicine stuff, holistic healing. And then in 1896, he published a pamphlet it was like 30 pages long. It's called Sappho and Socrates. And it's concurrent with the Havok Ellis. It was the first time anybody had published a theory of homosexuality as both biological, but also not pathological. The first time anybody published that. And it's a very like, the theory is very well developed in Sappho and Socrates. It's as if he's been working on it for a long time. And it's like, he really put his medical credentials to use. It's very scientific. It's very dry. He's, of course, not out. So he presents himself as this expert observer of this phenomenon. And he presents this coherent biological theory of it. And yeah, it's pretty, I mean, that first publication, so that was when he was in his late 20s. And then all the way through the, to the rest of his life, he's pretty consistent on what he thinks the homosexuality is. Um, 
but it's pretty, it, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. He wasn't the first person to publish a theory of homosexuals as like a special group of people or a class. That was pretty old. I mean, even when he was born, people had published that, but it's a really early iteration of the idea that it's biological. And then he spent the rest of his life advocating for that idea. He expanded his expertise. So he was a sexologist and sexology meant the science of sexuality broadly. So he had expertise on marriage and female sexuality and all kinds of other so eugenics. Um, but he, his particular focus was this theory of homosexuality. He also is really important in trans politics. So in 1910, he published a book called The Transvestites, The Erotic Urge to Cross-Dress, which was the first publication that we know of where anybody disaggregated transness from queerness. Um, yeah, but it, I mean, it's interesting that this guy who's in his late 20s would risk his career in this way. You know, he, he initially he kept his name off the pamphlet and then eventually put his own name on it. The following year, he and some other quietly queer men co-founded the world's first gay rights group, the Scientific Humanitarian Committee in Herschel's apartment. And he went on to forge this career as a public expert and advocate um, that was kind of unusual. You know, I, I have trouble thinking of other people in the late 19th century who right off the bat became professional advocates for, for reform without having some kind of an alternative career. Um, but yeah. And in the, in the um, Imperial Germany, so in Germany before the First World War, um, how well known does he start being how quickly and how does his kind of reputation begin to spread in those years, because my sense is that he's a pretty savvy user of and understander of media. Um, I mean, these books are being written in a dry and scientific way, and they're primary, they're written as though their primary audience is a scientific audience. Maybe that's not always true. Yeah, he was really good at walking that line. So Germany was unique in that government censorship was pretty relaxed if your publication was scientific. And he and other people he was working with in the late 19th century were very good at presenting themselves as scientific experts, but publishing things that were pretty pro-gay rights. Um, he was very successful very quickly. So they founded the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, and then in the first five years, they had some enormous wins. They got public support from the Social Democratic Party. They were able to send petitions to the Reichstag, the parliament, calling for the repeal of Germany's sodomy law, paragraph 175. And they were able to do this without being shut down by the government and without coming in for all that much social scorn. Um, there were a lot of reform movement, movements in late 19th century Germany, like vegetarianism, animal rights, nudism, feminism, marriage reform. And this was another one of them. They're not, um, you know, they're on the fringes, and I'm sure a lot of people look down their noses at them, but they also were not publicly rejected in a, in a, um, like a profound way. And even before the First World War, Hirschfeld was a nationally recognized expert in Germany on sexuality and on homosexuality. His reputation was called into question in the series of scandals around homosexuality in the Kaiser's inner circle. So he was called to testify as an expert witness 
on the homosexuality of like these high government officials, which was an enormous mistake. He shouldn't have let himself be pulled aside. <laughs> and it ended up affecting his reputation. But um, that scandal was in the national press well before the First World War. So, yeah, it, it's really um, gay yeah, rights. That was... That was 1907, um, and some people who listened to the show, we did an episode on uh, Prince Eulenburg, who was one of the people in those scandals. And it was interesting because on, like, on the one hand, Hirschfeld definitely got dragged through the mud by doing that. On the other hand, all these scandals always have this, and it was the same way with some of those, a completely different time and place, but some of these really um, phobic and um, kind of shock and awe style uh, yellow journalism reports about homosexuality in the like 60s. Um, where these, like at that time, you know, groups like Mattershine would be very good at getting their name into those stories, because then all of a sudden you have something that 10 million people read that says, and here's where the dirty homosexuals are, and if you want to get in contact with them, call. Um, and so in some way, in some way, these scandals also spread some of these concepts, because, right, the newspapers are then reporting on these things that Hirschfeld is saying, and Hirschfeld is laying out his concept of homosexuality in trial, and then newspapers that might not have ever had a front page summation of a Hirschfeld pamphlet or scientific volume will have a transcription or a sum up of what he said in the trial. And that actually spreads the ideas somehow further, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Part of his success is because there is a large and well-resourced community of men who have sex with men who are just thrilled when he and the, and the guys he was working with came along and sent them money his his institute, his advocacy organization, it's all funded by private donations throughout his life for the most part. Um, and if you look at 19th century Germany, th there's growing support from the moderate left to the left for repealing the sodomy law. It wasn't that controversial. So this is partially why almost as soon as they start out, they're able to get all these signatures on the petitions by famous men. But it, it, it's an idea that even, you know, when, when Hirschfeld was born, there were already pretty prominent people advocating for repealing the sodomy law, not, o not always on the grounds that, that he's advocating for, right? Rudolf Virchow, who's this prominent left of center anthropologist, defender of Jewish Germans had led a blue ribbon commission in the 1860s that found that the sodomy law had no medical justification and should be repealed. It, and that commission's report isn't really a defense of homosexuals in the way that Hirschfeld's work was, but it is a pretty unqualified call for ending the legal persecution of gay men. Um, so it's Hirschfeld, it's, he was remarkable, but he's also in the right place at the right time. Um, yeah, and he's, and he's pretty successful. And so then the First World War happens, um, and Germany loses, and the Kaisers fall, and there's this social democratic revolution, and this state is born, um, and this state is, you know, made up of a, a series of really unhappy compromises. It's a state that basically no one ever likes very much. Um, the uh, Spartacists, the left wing of the Social Democratic Party, the part of the Social Democratic, the parts of the Social Democratic Party that were more radical, that had rejected the idea of the Social Democratic Party collaborating in the First World War, um, they were almost immediately turned upon by the Social Democrats who sent right wing militias after them. The right wing never accepted the idea that the Social Democrats were a legitimate governing force. 
And so the Social Democrats end up running this country for most of it, or they end up being the largest party, rather, for most of it, um, but usually in coalitions with these centrist parties. And often, even though they're the largest party, they're not the ones in power, because those are the conditions that are set by those centrist parties in order to have there be some kind of functioning government. Um, and but I want to take us back to the beginning of that with this sort of moment of hope, which is this sort of moment right of the revolution. Um, and Hirschfeld is giving a speech like during it. Uh, right. And then um, after that revolution starts his Institute for Sexual Science in the center of Berlin. Yeah. Yeah. I'm more of a, I'm a more of a optimistic on Weimar person. So I, I think a lot of what you said is right, but I think it's a functional democracy with more support than we remember. Um, you know, the, the center party is the party that's in power the most, but that party had a lot of support and was pretty moderate. And, but anyway, okay, all that aside. Um, yeah, so so the revolution is this, is this big moment for Hirschfeld and for a lot of other people because it has strong meaning for sexual politics, particularly around the lifting of censorship but uh, for him, yeah, he's able to found in 1919 the first institute in the world dedicated to scientific research on sexuality, which was the Institute for Sexual Science in Berlin. Um, and it was so it was like a mansion that he bought. He did eventually get some funding from the state of Prussia, but a lot of this is privately financed. He bought this mansion and then he invited other doctors who had specialties on sexuality to have offices there. So they would consult and see patients and stuff like that. And there was a library and an archive and they had public lectures at the Institute. You could go and see a lecture. They had like a museum where you could go and see artifacts about sexuality. And Hirschfeld lived there. There were apartments in the Institute as well. And some other people live there too. Like, like you'll read on and off about people connected to Hirschfeld living at the Institute or not living at the Institute. And they had um, like support staff who worked there and Hirschfeld's long-term boyfriend, partner, and Carlo Giza lived there as well and worked there. So, um, yeah, so this was like a really important institution. I think the memory of the Institute of Sexual Science, like the popular memory doesn't always match the reality that well. Um, but yeah, it was, it was certainly like unprecedented and really important. What, what's your analysis of the difference between the popular memory and the reality? Well, like if you watch Transparent, it just, I know they for sure had parties at the Institute, but it was not a party space. You know, they had to. Right. Had to... And, and, again, and again, maybe this is that like Liza Minnelli sequence in Dirty Knickers idea of Weimar that, that um, that's often paired with maybe the too pessimistic dancing on a volcano kind of stuff, um, which is really what your first book is oriented against, right? This idea that there was just like so much sex so much sexy sex that like there had to be this backlash and that was the Nazis. Um, but it was more of an actual, it was like a, it was almost a medical institution, right? Like trans people were getting affirming healthcare there, sometimes not so affirming healthcare there. Um, there's like a big book archive. Um, and there's also a huge kind of colonial and ethnographic library there, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, let me say a little bit more about that. So so a lot of the other doctors who had offices in the Institute for Sexual Science, like, were not as progressive as Hirschfeld. 
And a lot of them had specialties that had to do with heterosexual marriage or, or like women's sexual health. Um, there was one other doctor who consulted with trans people, but trans medicine wasn't the main thing they were doing. I don't even, you know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm currently researching this, but there wasn't a heck of a lot of trans medicine going on at the Institute. The bulk of what they did was marriage counseling, um, which was eugenic advice about whether or not you should marry your partner and also advice about birth control. Um, there were trans people who went to the Institute and there were trans people who worked there as support staff, but it's not, I, I think people think it's like Johns Hopkins, the Johns Hopkins clinic in the sixties, but in the twenties with a much friendlier cis doctor overseeing it. But like it was not trans medicine. This is really the era before trans medicine in a lot of ways, like hormones were just discovered and there are, there is sex confirming surgery, but it's really unusual and rare and really dangerous. It's before antibiotics. So um, yeah, anyway, but all that aside, um, this is something that also Heike Bauer and Jana Funke have written about and other people, but there's this profound interest in ethnography and anthropology and the empire in gay politics back to Hirschfeld's first publication evidence that there was homosexuality all over the world in all time periods, but amongst all groups of people was this really important piece of evidence for people like Hirschfeld in order to say, well, this must be a biological thing if we're finding it all over the world across these racial and cultural lines. So they did all kinds of collecting of that evidence. And a lot of the collection took the form of like Hirschfeld knew gay men who worked in the colonial civil service and he would interview them. So they would come to the Institute and probably hang out in his apartment and tell him all about their sexual adventures in the colonies. And he would write all this down and eventually published it. One of his most important books is called The Homosexuality of Men and Women. It was like the Bible for homosexuals, apparently, in in its day. Um, and there are lots and lots of examples in there of white, European, Dutch, German, British guys who work in the empire who are reporting their sex lives. And then that's evidence of like, oh, homosexuality must be this biological, natural thing. Since look at all the sex that these people had in the colonies, you know? So yeah, there's, and also like interest in the past and the ancient past. Um, that's also something that they got really into the idea that homosexuality exists in all time periods. And the library is collecting also books about this and artifacts at my favorite, um, <laughs> my favorite, one of these documents from that era. And it's something that I'm working on a little bit because I'm working on a, on a um, book, book length dissertation project at the moment about this kind of, I don't like the word primitivism, but it's, I haven't found a, a better one yet. This kind of primitivism and the creation of the white gay man and kind of reorienting the history of the white gay man as an identity figure around this exact kind of um, anthropological ethnographic um, discourse, uh, which is of course also a racist and a colonial discourse, um, is this this book that's written by a, a German colonial etymologist, it's originally a bug guy uh, named Karschhock, which it's in three volumes and there's the same sex love of the nature peoples, the same sex love of the culture peoples, and then same sex love and civilization and of course, this is the sort of 19th century German hierarchical anthropology that understands nature peoples, mostly black and indigenous people, as being 
people with literally people without history, people without culture, um, like people who exist in a state of nature and who can therefore be observed in order to understand what nature looks like before there's any human anything. Um, and then the culture people who are the, you know, sort of civilizations created by racialized people that have left too much fancy stuff for the Europeans to completely ignore and claim there's no culture there. Um, so they talk about China in this way and they talk about India in this way. Um, and then of course, civilization is for white people. Um, and I had, and this book is rapturously discussed in all of these, many of these different, um, newspapers and magazines that exist at the time, but a series of books rather. Um, and it's just quite, uh, I think it's really a window into how, into a lot of the assumptions that are existing at this time, which, which kind of brings us now to the argument, main argument of your second book. So you, you propose in the second book, this book that we're talking about now, Racism and the Making of Gay Rights, that it's not only that Hirschfeld was a white person of his time who was racist and also wrote about homosexuality, and therefore his writing about homosexuality is going to contain racism. What you argue is more provocative and I think more interesting. And it's that there is, there is something of race and racism, or rather its absence, that's actually built into the analytic. And you want to talk about that a little bit and explain what you mean by that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right, that you could say, well, these guys had some troubling ideas about race and racism. And in the book, I give some examples of that, the, the things that he wrote about colonized people, particularly African-Americans. Hirschfeld wrote some troubling things. Um, and you could say, well, you know, they had those views, but but they also had this concept of homosexuality that was liberatory. But the concept of the homosexual as this biological class that's stable across time because of biology, the sexual minority, that contains at its outset a race politics that it like stayed with it through the 20th century and caused a lot of problems. Um, so if you look at like Hirschfeld, but also the people who published on the idea of homosexuals as a minority class in European society before Hirschfeld, and then also people who were writing about it at the time, they conceive of this as a, a natural biological, but not pathological division of humans into a larger group of heterosexuals and a smaller group of homosexuals. And in order to like elaborate that for their readers, they, they always make this analogy to some other class of humans who are a subgroup of the population, but who are not pathological. And if you look at the early 19th century, like Heinrich Hussli, the, the Swiss guy, who Robert Tobin published about, people should check out his book. Um, often he'll be like, you know, we men who love other men, or, or not we, he's, but like men who love other men are like witches or were like European Jews. So European Jews in the 19th century are, are a subset of the European population who are distinguished by special legislation in a lot of German speaking Europe and elsewhere. Um, and as the 19th century goes on, like more and more people like Hirschfeld and people around him will say, we are a sexual minority, like a racial minority, like a religious minority, like a national minority. Often they, they use Jews as an example. By the 1920s, 
European Jews seemed like they had defeated legal discrimination and stigma in this really inspiring story that took several hundred years of Jewish emancipation. It's really it's really hard for us to wrap our minds around that because the Holocaust happened, of course. But but in the 20s, it it, it was a high point of European Jewish um, politics and liberation in Germany. So it was really inspiring for for Jewish Germans who were queer to say, you know, homosexuals are like Jews and we're going to liberate ourselves like Jews. We are a sexual minority like the racial minority. Um, Kurt Hiller, who was this close associate of Magnus Hirschfeld, seems to have coined the term sexual minority, which is still so important in politics. People use that term all the time, but it was that term is an analogy to a racial minority, European Jews. Um, so like analogy, you know, if you read about feminism in the 80s, or if you read queer of color critique in the 90s, that kind of analogizing causes a really bad problem which is that it makes subject positions where you're both a racial minority and a sexual minority, like a kind of plus one or plus two, or you're like a special case of the original case, which is to be non-racialized. This is a little bit complicated. Let me try to like talk through it in a more coherent way. Um, But, you know, so like, I don't know if people remember California passed that horrible anti-gay law and then the advocate, the national U.S. gay magazine ran this infamous cover that said, gay is the new black. What they were trying to say is like, gay people are now as oppressed as African-Americans have been in, in American history. Okay. So a lot of people got really upset about that. There's lots of reasons to get upset about that. (laughs) The historical oppression of African-Americans is not, like the historical oppression of white queer people in many ways, and it was profoundly more violent and horrible, right? Um, but also, like, like to just kind of think about the way that works in language, if you're like, gay is the new black, you're implying that everyone who's gay is white, and everyone who's black is not gay, and you're just erasing the fact that there are queer black people. They're kind of caught in the middle, or they're in the special condition, So you get to this place in gay politics where it's easy for white gay people to be like, well, being white and gay is the kind of original kind of gay. And then if you're not white and you're gay, you're sort of this special other thing. And we're going to like, we'll have a panel about that after lunch or whatever. Or like, oh, racism. Yeah, like maybe we need to think about that, but maybe not. Rather than starting from the position of like, I'm racialized as not white and I'm queer and like, let's build a politics that's about me. So like the analogy, sexual minority, that analogy allows for this white gay politics to like just ignore racism and exclude people of color, which I mean, that's not the only history of gay politics. There's been lots of like awesome queer of color organizing. Um, There are many stories of queer of color people like back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, But it's it's the case that like gay politics in Germany and in the U.S. and in other places has had this problem where white queer people just assume that to be gay is to be white, and then they just kind of proceed from there. Um, and that's that, that's sucked, you know, that's sucked. And and what I'm trying to so so what I just said, like a lot of that has been teased out by other people, and I I, I learned that by reading other people. But my contribution is to be like this goes back to the very beginning. 
you know, in many ways, like Hirschfeld is the beginning of modern gay politics. He gives us the original framework of modern gay politics that's still with us. And this problem with racism is like present from the get-go. It's baked in. Right. And, and what you're proposing is not only that as people like Heike Bauer and, and Jana Funke, who's been on the show, have talked about that Hirschfeld's ideas about sexuality are influenced by racist anthropology or colonial archives or ways of thinking of the colonies, but that this analogy itself, which is what Hirschfeld is popularizing, the the centering of that analogy in our collective definition of what a sexual minority is or of what the homosexual is, that bakes racism into the cake and we're still eating the cake. Am I summarizing you right? Because I think that's a really important point and I think I want to make sure people get it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I think like we're still eating the cake. Like, like there's on the one hand, queer of color critique and like queer of color activism has been pointing this problem out for a long time. And on the other hand, I think that like white gay politics in some ways has gotten better since I was in my 20s. Um, at thinking about racism as a central problem in gay politics. Like, um, but yeah, you know, it also, this problem persists. This problem persists. So you mentioned that this idea, right, of overturning the sodomy laws is, you know, a progressive idea or a left idea, but not an unthinkable idea in the political climate that Hirschfeld's working in. And actually, in, in your book, and we, we talk about this a bit in, in the Bad Gays book as well, citing you, um, in 29, they came rather close to overturning the Weimar-era sodomy law, uh, the, the, uh, the old uh, sodomy law, didn't they? Um, and, and this led to, I think, a really interesting kind of um, division within Hirschfeld's own group. And do you want to maybe speak a little bit more about that? Because I think it points to a lot of the kind of ongoing legacies um, of these politics and these political divisions and how we think and talk about queer politics now. Yeah, so uh, really in like the last moment when the German parliament was halfway functional before the Nazis came to power, there was a parliamentary committee that was rewriting the entire penal code. And they got to the paragraph about sodomy. And Hirschfeld and his allies successfully advocated to have that paragraph stricken from the new penal code, and the committee actually voted in favor of striking it. So unfortunately, that's where the reform stopped. It never got out of that committee because democracy fell apart. And when the Nazis came to power, the law was still in the books, and then they revised it and made it much harsher. Um, but this was like a tremendous win for Hirschfeld. And what I found when I really read into it that surprised me um, is that it mirrored a lot of other movements for legal reform that I had actually seen in my own life. Like I, I was listening back to your show on Bernie Frank and I was remembering the 2007 non-discrimination law that, that threw out trans people. And I, that, that was like a really formative moment for me. Um, that didn't pass in the U.S. 
Um, but this was kind of a similar thing where they were the, 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 they were actually rewriting the sodomy law and taking out consensual adult male-male sex. So that was no longer going to be a crime, but they were going to super increase the criminal penalties for commercial male-male sex. It was a crackdown on male sex workers. And there's all this language that came out of the committee, but also like you can find this in Hirschfeld's own work that vilifies men who sold sex to other men distinguishes them as like not homosexual. So Hirschfeld doesn't think that they're real homosexuals who have this inborn thing. He thinks that they're these shady working class guys who are just too lazy to get a real job and they're selling sex and we should crack down on them. And they're also probably burglars and they're part of the riffraff. You know, they're this criminal underclass. It's like the lumpen proletariat is the, are the people who are selling sex. Um, so Hirschfeld was completely fine with that compromise to decriminalize adult consensual non-commercial sex and then to crack down on sex workers. And the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, the world's first gay rights group, actually split apart over the question of what they should do. Should they support the legal reform? Should they take this big win while throwing sex workers under the bus? And like, I think in this inspiring moment, some of the people who worked with Hirschfeld were like, no, we are not going to throw sex workers under the bus. We're going to take a stand on this. We, we are against this reform. Um, and they kicked Hirschfeld out of the world's first gay rights group that he had co-founded. So his political career like has this dark moment at the end that I think a lot of people don't remember. They associate Weimar with like, you know, what you're talking about cabaret with like lots of sexy sex and dancing and, um, you know, creepy Nazis and stuff. But actually Weimar is like, there's a lot of like respectable middle-class people trying to get by and find some kind of a compromise. Um, and a lot of Weimar is about this respectable middle-class, like, you know, facade of respectability in public and like, we'll look the other way in terms of your private life. But we really have to go after those degenerate working class guys who are selling sex on the street, right? That kind of creepy, right. like, yeah. And the, and the, uh, there is a, I mean, the, the potential for blackmail, and it's not just a potential, it's real, um, is also maybe part of what's constructing some of Hirschfeld's vitriol on this. I'm not stepping in to defend kicking sex workers out of the, out of the bill, um, but just to maybe contextualize some of that vitriol for people who, aren't as familiar with the time, blackmail is a huge problem, um, especially among the kinds of people Hirschfeld would have been friends with. Um, and blackmail is such a problem that the first film that's kind of about homosexuality in a positive way, which is called Different from the Others, which Hirschfeld is in, the plot of the story is promising young violin student gets blackmailed by shady sex worker commits suicide. And so it's like, that's part of, I think, the calculation, and that's part of what's maybe pushing some of Hirschfeld's vitriol in this, which doesn't mean that it's right. It just means that there's a, there's a source of it. So it's 1929, 1930. Um, Hirschfeld has just been kicked out of being part of the Scientific Humanitarian Committee. Um, you mentioned Weimar democracy is starting to look a little scary, um, starting to look like it's not uh, functioning so well. Um, and this is when Hirschfeld decides to go on this world tour, right? Yeah, so he he it was sort of spur of the moment. He decided he would go to New York City and give some public lectures. And uh, he went. They were wildly successful. He was a huge hit in the American press. He was the Einstein of sex. 
Einstein at this point was in California and was a public figure in the U.S. as well. So, so Hirschfeld is like this, the, this like foreign German sex expert on all kinds of sexuality for Americans. And it's super exciting. He gets all kinds of coverage and he realizes that if he wants to, he can use the honorariums from the lecture to go on a tour, maybe around the world. And he decides like, yeah, he does want to do that. Um, so, you know, he was toward, this was towards the end of his life. He was in his sixties, but like, if you look at him, it looks like he was in his eighties. He looks terrible. <laughs> um, and he decided, heck yeah, I'm going to go around the world. I'm going to see the world one more time. Um, and he goes on this like fabulous lecture tour, which in a way is like really a high point for gay rights because he, he did the, the lectures were about marriage and eugenics and female sexuality and stuff like that and divorce. But he, he, he always said something in there about how homosexuality was inborn and that homosexuals shouldn't be persecuted. So it's like the first time in the history of the world that anybody told so many people in public about that idea in so many different places. And he was on the radio in China and he, he thought he reached a hundred thousand people with like one radio broadcast. Yeah, it is interesting. I just want to reiterate this again, because now when Hirschfeld is spoken about, it's so often, I mean, almost entirely, we're doing it right now in the context of talking about kind of gay history and gay politics. Um, but I'm, I mean, I work on uh, transatlantic gay history. And so I've looked a lot at trying to figure out basically what, ideas of Hirschfeld's or sort of things from Hirschfeld um, specifically about gay politics might have might have um, come ashore in the U.S. during that tour. And the answer is actually less than you would think, because most of what is being written about is the marriage stuff. Um, and then um, part of that marriage stuff is this very strong connection to eugenics. And so he meets in California when he's there with someone named Paul Papineau. Do you want to talk about that meeting and, and who Papineau was and, and why that's troubling? Yeah, so if you read Hirschfeld, a lot of what he wrote wasn't about homosexuality. It was about marriage and human sexuality more broadly. And he's very interested in eugenics. He absolutely believed in it. Eugenics was widely accepted at the time. There are only a f really like a few excep exceptions on the intellectual spectrum. I mean, even if you look at like German Catholics during the Weimar Republic, there's a great book on the Catholic Center Party's eugenics. Like even they supported eugenic programs to some extent. And the idea that like humans should control evolution intentionally was, was widely accepted. So, um, and Hirschfeld saw this as really connected to gay rights and really connected to everything that he did. He dedicated his book about the world tour to eugenics. <laughs> I'm sure eugenics. Like this book is like this. This book goes. This one goes out to my buddy eugenics. Like the book is dedicated to the concept of eugenics. Yes. Because he thought he was like he was like we need to use science to decide which people are more fit and and scientific racism is bogus, but we can use eugenics to decide that. So so the so Paul. Paul Popno, the guy you mentioned, was like the guy in California who, who was one of the most vocal supporters and architects of California's absolutely horrific eugenic sterilization program. Tens of thousands of people, I think it's like 80,000 people, were sterilized against their will, many of them in surgeries that took place before antibiotics. 
um, because of this guy who was a, a vitriolic racist, an anti-Semite, a misogynist, and a big believer in eugenics. And Hirschfeld, like, didn't share a lot. So, so Papineau was kind of a right-wing eugenics guy, and Hirschfeld was a left-wing guy. He didn't share a lot of the... Um, I mean, Hirschfeld was racist, but in a different way. I think he was a misogynist, but in a much milder way, right? A lot, a lot of like Hirschfeld doesn't share a lot of the disturbing ideas, but they had enough in common that they hung out when Hirschfeld was in California. Apparently, they had a lovely time. Um, they found each other's work like mutually inspiring. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, after the Nazis came to power, like the California eugenicists associated with the Human Betterment Foundation, which is where, which was Papano was one of these people. Like they were in correspondence with the Nazis about eugenics, and they they had influence over the way that the Nazis set up the German eugenics program. There was a lot of like transatlantic conversation about that. Um, so yeah, that was that was somebody who he visited when he was in the United States. He also, mm-hmm. I mean, he met he met Americans who were a lot more admirable, such as Langston Hughes. Um, but what he wrote about Langston Hughes is really troubling. He he had almost nothing to say about him except that. Um, Hirschfeld wrote in his journal after he met Langston Hughes that he, Hirschfeld, was, quote, like, studying the Black race. So Langston Hughes was a racial specimen and nothing more. Yeah, so Papineau, the eugenicist, is this fellow intellectual with whom we can have this civilized discussion about our agreements and our disagreements. Langston Hughes is a racial specimen. Yeah, and as a graduate of Langston Hughes Middle School, I have to really, like, speak out against that. (laughs) It was a, that was I mean, a I want to say at least it wasn't at least it wasn't Paul Papano Middle School. Um, hopefully, no such middle schools exist. Word up, yeah. So he then he's going west, right? He's following Hegel's spirit west and uh, passes California, sails across the Pacific. He ends up in China and he meets someone very important, who's kind of the second subject of your book. Um, who does he meet, and how do they meet? Yeah, so Hirschfeld gave a lecture in Shanghai in 1931 to a group of wealthy, like fashionable Chinese feminists in a new modern apartment building. And his lectures seemed to have been pretty dry and they were long. And at the end of the lecture, this young man came up and introduced himself. And that was Lei Xiao Tong. He was a medical student who had been born in Hong Kong. He was studying in Shanghai. He was very interested in sexology. He already knew of Hirschfeld. And he said to Hirschfeld, do you need somebody to translate for you while you're in China? Hirschfeld said yes. Um, And they spent the rest of Hirschfeld's time in China together. Lei became his assistant. Hirschfeld fell in love with Lei. Lei was like, I don't want to, yeah, he was a very charming, very wealthy, sweet, personable, very good looking, very well-dressed guy um and Herschel just completely fell for him and they were together for almost the rest of Herschel's life at the very end Lay finally went to the University of Zurich to pick up medical school again so um to kind of try to restart his own career after years spent supporting Herschel and helping him write his book about the world tour um but yeah he was he was a it was a very important relationship at the end of Hirschfeld's life, and super important relationship at the beginning of Lay's life. Lay lived until 1993. And so this traveling with Lay, um, Lay is someone who also seems to completely fall head over heels for Hirschfeld, right? I mean, it seems like a very mutual 
a very mutual um, relationship and one between two people who both have, I mean, they both, they both have something to give one another, right? Hirschfeld gets this um, charming, good looking, um, adept uh, translator and companion and um, potentially lover. And uh, Lay gets to be with what for an aspiring sexologist is probably the most famous and exciting person in the world. Um, but they're both, I mean, Lay was able to support himself. They were both, they were, they were both people coming into this who had something to give the other and it was a mutual relationship. Yeah, I was really, that's what I eventually decided. I was really concerned to like, be careful about what Lay thought because Lay, in none of the papers that he wrote that survived, does he describe a relationship with Hirschfeld? And of course, he's like his student. So it's very possible that this wasn't a mutual relationship. But I found a lot of evidence that Lay also loved him. Yeah, that he loved him back and that it was a um, emotional, similar emotional relationship on both sides. And for Lay, it was hugely advantageous. Hirschfeld promised Lay that he would make him his successor. So Lay was going to take over as the most prominent sexologist in the world, which was a really attractive option for him. Right. And so as these men are traveling, they go to India, they meet with uh, the anti-colonial leader and future prime minister of, of uh, independent India, Nehru. Um, political developments in Germany start to get uh, extremely nasty, especially if you're a gay Jewish sexologist. Yeah, especially, I mean, Hirschfeld was a national figure in Germany and the Nazis went after him in particular. You know, he, he's he one of been the... attacked several times, right, by, by right-wing students. I mean, he was a... Yeah, he was attacked once um, in Munich, but he justifiably was, like, afraid for his life. They're, they're, they're targeting him in particular. You know, they have, they have like, 12 or 13 prominent Jewish Germans who they, who they will call out in their publications and they'll publish their pictures and stuff and they're attacking them in particular and he was one of these people right and so the decision is made to not return to germany yeah so they come to the end of this world tour and in so many ways the the story of the world tour is this um story of success and liberation and hirschfeld's book about it is very i mean contains all of these moments of joy and adventure and then they get to the end and he can't go back to Germany. They can't go back to Berlin. So his promise to Lay that he would train him at the Institute of Sexual Science and that then Lay would take over, he can't fulfill that. Um, and, and pretty shortly after that, Hirschfeld, you know, essentially his life's work was destroyed. They, the Nazis, when they took power a couple of months later, they seized the Institute, destroyed the archive in a book burning, which Hirschfeld this this is a true story. He he records in his um, in his papers that he was in a movie and he saw a newsreel at the beginning of the movie showing the destruction of the institute. So he actually sat there in the dark movie theater in exile and saw his institute destroyed on the screen. It's just um, must have been devastating. Um, but he resolved to rebuild. He was going to refound the institute in Paris. Um, but it really left Lay in this horrible position where 
He's in love with this guy. The guy's at the end of his life. He's sick. Hirschfeld had um, malaria and diabetes. Um, and like the whole professional relationship has changed, right? So now Lay is this wealthy young man who it's not clear where he's going to finish medical school. Um, his future has been cast into doubt, right? And he's beholden to this older guy who's like determined to refound the Institute, but it looks like probably that's not going to be possible. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a, the, so this is the exile. This is the last period of Hirschfeld's life. And yeah, because the, and it wouldn't have been possible for many reasons, because one of which was that the, the funding sources that this is dependent on are no longer available, right? These are people who are also beginning to be persecuted by the new Nazi government. Um, and so Hirschfeld dies then in Nice um, in 1935. And what happens to the last few things that are with him? Who's there with him? And 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 what kind of happens to, to Lay after that? Yeah, so, so in the months before he died, they had this kind of profound moment in the relationship where Lay wanted to go to Harvard and he to finish medical school. And he was going to pay for Hirschfeld and Carl Giza, the other boyfriend, to go to the United States and relocate. And Hirschfeld thought about this seriously. He wrote to Harry Benjamin and asked if he could take over part of Harry Benjamin's practice. <laughs> so he mm. so almost came to the US. And then Hirschfeld decides, no, he's not going to do it. Lay goes to the University of Zurich. Hirschfeld passed away when Lay wasn't there. Um, so... In other words, even if he had made it to, to the U.S. and is a Bostonite, the idea of Hirschfeld in Boston is driving me nuts. But um, uh, even if he had made it to uh, the U.S., he was unhealthy enough that he died of natural causes in Nice before such a journey could be made. Yeah, that's true. He died of natural, natural causes. He seems like he had a really, like, as deaths go, it was pretty pleasant. He was It was his birthday. He celebrated his birthday. He had his new cute secretary there with him and his nephew who he really loved and he kind of just keeled over hmm. and so for a long time then that's where the story of lay ended at least in terms of how western histories of this were written right this was this great mystery um as to as to what had happened and what was left and and that was of extreme interest to historians right because given that all the archives in Berlin were burned, the idea that there were some papers or documents or archives or something that weren't, uh, that weren't there in Berlin that hadn't been destroyed um, was really motivating uh, for people. And so, so was there anything with Hirschfeld when he, when he died and, and what was there and when, what happened to it? Yeah. So most of his papers didn't survive, but his will named Ley and Karl Giza as his heirs. Giza took his own life um, re really sad story uh, uh, a couple of years later and then Lay it was so in the 1980s these students rediscovered Hirschfeld and some, these are people who founded the Magnus Hirschfeld Society the Magnus Hirschfeld Gesellschaft in Berlin who like you, you and I know and they looked all over for Lay they tried really hard to find him because they thought maybe he had some papers with him and, they tried and maybe for he was alive, right? Because he, he yeah. would have made sense, yeah. And he was, in fact, but they couldn't find him. Yeah, it's it's like tragic. He was alive and they weren't able to find him before he passed. So Lay um, 
lived a very long life and did lots of different things. Ended up in Vancouver. He was a um, Canadian citizen for the last several decades of his life, lived in Vancouver. And when he passed, it doesn't seem like anybody in his family realized that he was the super important figure in gay history. Um, and he did have papers in his apartment, but they were thrown into the garbage, which I just want to say, like, you know, everybody who has lost a loved one, it's really hard to know what to do with their stuff. And I, I don't want to, you know, throw any shade on anybody for throwing out anything. You know, th this is a situation where people didn't know what was going on, what the stuff was. Um, and you do have to, like, you know, my dad just passed, like, eventually you have to get rid of their stuff. Like, they 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 don't take dead people don't take their stuff with them <laughs> um so his papers were like like in the bins and a neighbor was walking by and got curious and and decided to take some of the stuff out and took out a whole suitcase full of material and had it in his apartment for many years and finally um Ralph Dizza of the Magnus Hirschfeld Society saw a post on the internet where the neighbor was like, I found this stuff. It has to do with Magnus Hirschfeld. Does anybody know anything about him? And Doza was able to connect with this guy and then flew to Canada, got the material, brought it back to Berlin, and it's in Berlin to this day. And some of those papers are super important. One of them is Magnus Hirschfeld's journal. And another is Lay's book that he wrote about Hirschfeld. And that book that Lay wrote about Hirschfeld is something that you talk about a lot in your book, but it's actually something. So I knew this story of these papers being found. I know Ralph Doza, and I had never had any idea that there was writings of Lay's in this, in this suitcase. Um, and you spend a lot of time thinking about Lay's theory. So do you want to talk a little bit about the writing of Lay's that you found? Maybe why it wasn't spoken about so much before and what your big takeaways from it are? Yeah, so Lay wrote... It's like 16 pages of manuscripts and then a lot of notes for a book that he was writing about Hirschfeld. And Ralph had written an article discussing that material and he also did a lot to preserve it. Like he transcribed it. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's really great, the things that the Magnus Hirschfeld Society did to preserve this material. I, I think the reason that people hadn't like really delved into Lay's book is partially that I just like, he was always just a footnote. You know, if you look at like histories of Hirschfeld, it's, it's like people don't really think Lay was that important. And they'll just be like, Oh, the Chinese boyfriend, this and this, you know, in this like kind of dismissive way. I don't think anybody really felt like his ideas were important. Um, and also he was writing the book at the end of his life and it's like not super um, coherent by conventional standards. So it seems like when he was writing and making these notes, um, there were notes to himself, so, but, but they're hard to decipher. Um, there's a lot of repetition. Um, there are some moments in the manuscript that you're like, Oh, is this, um, you know, is he delusional? When I first read it, I was like, oh, he was really out of touch with reality when he wrote this. But the more I thought about it, the more I was like, oh no, it's a novel. He's making up a story. This is a made up story, but that's on purpose. Um, so it's sort of like you have to 
sit with the stuff for a long time. But then a, a really important clue for me was that when he was at the University of Zurich after Hirschfeld died, he was very close with this British novelist who wrote a novel about Lay. It's called That Which is Hidden. And it's like a pretty ponderous read, but Lay is a main character. And it's it's a it's a thriller. And Lay writes in his own papers that he wanted to write a book like that about him and Hirschfeld. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, it's supposed to be a thriller about Lay and Hirschfeld. But then also it's like Lay is going to smuggle in his own research. He continued to do sexological research after Hirschfeld died. So which is so exciting because people, you know, there's the sense of like, well, Lay was supposed to carry on the project and he didn't. But like, hey, he did. He actually did. He kept doing research and he had findings. Um, so I think the plan was to like write this kind of like fictional thriller that also contains the sexological findings. Um, and he never finished the book, but it, it's, it's super cool that we have this record of what he thought and his ideas about homosexuality were like completely different from Hirschfeld's. So I think he was writing this in the seventies and the eighties, but he rejects the idea of innate homosexuality and he finds like widespread bisexuality. So the percentages that he gives, and he says that he went all over the world using the methods that Hirschfeld used to try to assess like how many people were queer. And he found that homosexuals plus bisexuals are a majority of the human population, which I was like, yeah, <laughs> right on. <laughs> it's just like a um, kind of a heroic comeback to the idea of the sexual minority. It's like the sexual major majority, woo. So this sexual majority idea that, that Lee comes up with is both in conversation with and then also radically different from, from what Hirschfeld says. And that, that is, I think, really exciting. So we're coming to the end of the episode. We always say at the end of an episode, subject of episode, gay, not gay, bad or not. Um, and I think Hirschfeld was real gay. I think there's no, uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, but the question of bad is really interesting for me here. Um, from where I'm sitting in Berlin to call Magnus Hirschfeld bad gay um, feels extremely, extremely counterintuitive um, to the kind of majority uh, in gay institutions and gay and gay spaces and, and gay politics um, kind of conversation about him. I mean, he's the person who is the the named figure I, for people in the States. It's even more than Harvey Milk and it's even more singular in terms of who feels like this really safe figure that everyone, the leftists, the centrists, even the center right, everyone is really happy with and comfortable with. And so at the end of the day, after all of this thought and all this research, what is your assessment uh, of Hirschfeld, the figure? Um, where do you come down and how do you think about him? Ah, oh no, you're going to kick it to me. Okay. Well, def yes, gay. Um, He's definitely complicated and he's got some really troubling passages in his work that I, I tried to quote in fully in the book so people could take a look at that. Um, and I think that for a long time, people have not wanted to see that, um, but we can't keep pretending that he didn't, you know, have this like core of eugenics in the way that he saw the world or that he, that he didn't have troubling racism in his work. Um, or that he was like a feminist, you know, in some histories of Hirschfeld, it's like, he's the first intersectional feminist. It's like, no, no, he was really, really not. 
Um, he was really, really not. And not only by the standards of our time, but by the standards of his own of his own moment, he was in contact with people who were a lot more anti-racist, who were a lot more feminist, and he just rejects their ideas. So I think that we have to we have to take a look at that. And in that sense, yeah, I think he's a bad gay. Um, in the like the parade of bad gays, this guy is a is a left of center social democrat who opposed the Nazis, who who also did a lot of good. You know, so maybe like a more complicated, um, and I don't, yeah, yeah I don't want to. And I mean, the the whole premise of this show is that we're able to have grown up conversations about people like this, and we don't have to flatten people into the status of a hero or 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 um, or anything else. That that we can actually think about someone as they existed in time, but also without falling into this other thing, which is the. Oh, but in the time, no one was any different than that, which I think is also something you hear a lot about Hirschfeld. Oh, he was this, but everyone was. Um, and and first of all, no, they weren't, right? Like in the case of the sex work stuff, there's prominent people in the Scientific Humanitarian Committee who care enough to not do this, right? Or there's people like Roger Caseman, who we've talked about on the show, who has his own um, uh, sort of haunted relationship to sex in the colonies and not one that I want to wholly ethically endorse, but is certainly not somebody who's going around thinking about um, the people of color that he's interacting with as race types or as race specimens. Um, and who is uh, and, and and so there there are there are alternatives and and so it's important to think about someone in a complicated way, I think, without falling into that um, that kind of oversimplified um, analysis. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today to talk about Hirschfeld. Um, if people want to find more from you, there's obviously the two books, Sex in the Weimar Republic and the new book, Racism and the Making of Gay Rights. And both of those are linked in the show notes. Um, is there any place else you'd like to send listeners if they want to know more about you and what you're up to? Well, they could just go to my faculty page if you want to kind of see other things that I've written. Um or Google me. But yeah, thanks. Awesome. Well, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. You can find the show on Twitter at Bad Gaze Pod. And uh, of course, you can go to badgazepod.com to find a link to our Patreon and a place to buy our book, Bad Gaze, A Homosexual History, and uh, all kinds of episodes of the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye. <laughs>